Welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist with the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. We've got a special episode this week, Easter week. We're excited to be joined by Matt Emerson. Matt, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Matt is a trained lawyer. He's an educator. He's also an author. His work has been published in the Wall Street Journal, Commonweal, uh, America Magazine. He used to have an ongoing uh, piece there called The Ignatian Educator. He writes about faith and culture. He's also got a book that was published in 2016 called Why Faith, A Journey of Discovery. Um, so let's start just a question, Matt, about your, about your, your own journey. Uh, you graduated from Notre Dame Law School in what year? 2008. 2008, and you started working in, in Phoenix as a, as a lawyer, um, and then you abruptly left to go teach theology at a Catholic high school in Palm Desert, California. And from, the, yeah. from the outside, I'm sure that seemed a little nuts. Yeah, it's, it's not like the greatest <laughs> financial planning strategy. <laughs> so speak to kind of how you, how you made that decision, why you did that, and then also like how you explain that to the rest of the people around you. Yeah, well, I'll give you the very uh, Notes version of it. Uh, graduated in 2008, uh, started practicing law here, and probably it's fair to say I just had a lot of questions that came to the surface about my own relationship with, with God, where, you know, what God might have in store for me, uh, where discernment was leading me. And uh, I thought I, I thought I had a pretty good uh, roadmap laid out when I had graduated. But then, you know, as, as kind of the months wore on, I, I felt kind of a different call, a different pull. And um, I began to, uh, you know, simply pray about it and think about it a lot. And uh, as I did that, a couple different options begin to open up, and I realized that that maybe uh, I needed to to think about, even though I had only been practicing a short time, leaving law, and um, and taking advantage of a of a different opportunity. So you you use some you use some words here that I want to maybe unpack a little bit, sure. for, especially for some of our listeners who might not be religious or or not be not be Christian. You use like discernment, God, even calling. Like what is. Uh, is there a non-religious or, or non-Christian version of, of discernment or, or calling that you could... Sure. I, I think, I think. well, let me just let me back up. So uh, the idea of discernment in, in my tr- sort of religious tradition, the Catholic Christian tradition, uh, is the idea that you know, we have many options and potential options in life, whether it's career, professional options, personal options. Uh, options involving, you know, uh, who we might marry or, or where we might live. And, and so uh, for someone who believes in God and, and believes in that, that God is a loving God who is uh, trying to sort of lead his creation, uh, discernment is the idea of putting up all these options or, or uh, putting these questions to prayer and hopefully sensing that, that God might be inviting you into one option or maybe calling you to a particular uh, path. It's, I don't mean to sound transactional about it, you know, in terms of option, but uh, just discernment is the idea of I take the choices I face in life and I put them up to the filter of, of prayer. And, and as, a, as a Catholic Christian, I believe uh, that, that God is involved in my life and, and more than just in an abstract way that, that through prayer, um, I can get guidance on some of these fundamental choices and decisions I have in my life, N- not with any sort of perfect certainty, but 
more than just a, a murky mystery. Yeah, and I, I've uh, I've heard you tell the story a few different times about coming over. I think even the even the the idea of prayer, like, is there the sense that like you just show up in an email or an inbox or something that's like, oh, here's the direction I go. But you've I mean you've talked about just like maybe the granite. I know you talk about the like granite countertops or like what it's a feeling, right? Like what. Well, the what? yeah. So, and and uh, I'll come back to your question in a minute because I know your question was about sort of non-religious ideas yeah. of discernment because I think there's something to be said for that. But yeah, so when I was I was uh, first out of law school, I, I was, you know, in, in Central Phoenix and thinking about starting a. Uh, well, I had started my professional career, and you begin to think about okay, you know, when am I going to settle down? When am I going to get married? Have kids? What schools are they going to go to? And the story that uh, I've told before was I was uh, looking for a house, and I was looking throughout Central Phoenix, trying to find that you know <laughs> perfect location, the perfect house. And it was my first time even looking for a house, so I was somewhat uh, clueless at it. And uh, at one point, my realtor talked about granite countertops, and I was in an older home, and she had implied that that was that that was an upgrade that I should consider, and. And I just spent a lot of time thinking about granite countertops, <laughs> way too much time, you know, when I was, and then, but, but granite countertops became a much more of a symbol for <laughs> the idea that I could, I, that I uh, could find or locate my, my happiness or purpose in the ideal home with the right upgrades or the right neighborhood. And, and I, at the time I just realized, okay, I need to step back and, you know, think critically about, you know, what my choices were and, and was it all about finding the right house and the right location with the right upgrades, granite countertops or otherwise, or was there a deeper call and a, and a, a more, uh, I guess, robust spiritual reflection that I needed to undertake. So let me get into, oh, but I, yeah, I, I do want to go back though, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you don't mind, Billy, I, I do think, uh, discernment happens all the time for people who don't necessarily believe in God or who don't necessarily believe in a, in a, active God. You know, I think discernment can just be a very reflective uh, philosophical approach on life. And, you know, discernment is often just taking, like I just said, taking a step back and trying to look at things objectively, look at what's, what are the different goods at stake. So in a, in a professional situation, if someone doesn't believe in God, uh, I know, I'm sure many people still think, okay, if I, if I take this job or if I move into this city, What's the impact on my family? What's the impact on me? What's the long-term goals? What's the long-term plans? And I, I think that would be a, a version of discernment that uh, many people employ, you know, that, that's effective. And even if they don't explicitly invoke God or, or seek, you know, the it, Holy Spirit. It, right? it, it's something which in the secular world is uh, wide, wildly uh, misunderstood and, and often ridiculed, you know, when you hear a public figure say that he feels led by God to, to do something. Um, but as Matt um, explained, it's a process that everybody goes through in confronting the choices before them in life. And because you confront those choices with a degree of spiritual reflection, doesn't mean that the process is fundamentally different. Um, and it ought not to be um, such a mystery and such a subject of ridicule. Now, there are people who say, God spoke to me, and, and people, I think, misunder, 
understand that. Yeah. Uh, for most people, some people actually think that God did pick up the telephone right. or, or, or send the email. But for most people, it is that secular process of di- discernment uh, rooted in a sense of spirituality and spiritual reflection. So it's not all that much different than the common human experience. It's yeah. just informed uh, by spirituality and reflection. And this gets at the heart of some of your writings, Matt, about how do you make decisions, how do you act, how do you go about the business of life when there's uncertainty yeah. and that at a certain point, everyone's making decisions without knowing what's going to happen exactly. So how do you make these decisions? We base them on, uh, you know, experiences in the past advice we get from other people, but we act without knowing. So I guess everyone acts out of what you would say out of, out of faith a little bit. Um, and you, and you've argued like knowing that we all act out of faith in, in many, many occasions, uh, what's that then to extend, you know, where's the boundaries of that? Or how do you extend the object of your faith to something beyond and which you, sure. which you would call God? Yeah. And, and I, uh, and my stuff I've written in my book, I, I talk about that, that, um, faith, uh, or belief is sort of essential to being a human being. And there are some people who criticize, uh, you know, when I published the wall street journal article on this topic, I got a lot of, you know, feedback from, scientists both on random blogs and some one or two emailed me personally very upset this idea that scientists even scientists have faith but i've tried to be clear that i'm not saying it's the exact same thing as religious Mm -hmm. faith but there is a sense of in which all of us no matter our walk of life have to engage in this act of entrustment Um, if i go to the doctor right I, i don't generally well most people don't personally verify his or her credentials, make sure that everything they recommend as a treatment has been fully backed up by modern science is, is the proper course. You trust that maybe your referring doctor, you know, the, the diploma's on the wall. You, you have to sort of believe that um, what you're being told is going to be fruitful. And that, that happens all the time. We, we have to entrust ourselves to people, to realities, to futures. You know, we, um, we say it colloquially sometimes when someone says, I have faith in you, right? They're basically saying, I, I believe that you're going to complete something or, or become someone or do something. So with that framework, and, and this isn't uh, my own um, sort of intellectual invention. I mean, this has been around for a long time. In fact, John Paul II in his um, encyclical 1998, Fides et Ratio, or Faith and Reason, uh, talks about the human being is one who lives by belief. And so what I've talked about and a lot of what I've written is if if that is a a default state for being a person, this idea of entrustment, belief, and a ground-level faith, well, let's just talk about where that can extend and what are the reasons it can extend to a reality, namely God, uh, and and how credible is that? There's a related point. to what is a common obstacle to uh, religious belief and and practice uh, that I think is incredibly important. Um, When people talk about religion, they tend to say, well, there's no proof uh, that God exists. Well, whether God exists or not is the most important question of all. 
uh, and if he exists, whether he has uh, things he wants me to do or not do with my life is then an incredibly important uh, question. We do not put the obstacle of proof before any other major life decision that we make. Uh, if we uh, decide to go on a vacation to a place that we've never visited, uh, before we decide to go, we don't demand proof that we're going to have a good time and it's going to be enjoyable. Uh, it's whether it's more reasonable to believe that or not. Um, similarly, life choices of mates. There's no proof that this is the person that you're intended to spend your life with. Um, we, in every other major life decision, our standard is reasonableness. Is it more reasonable to believe that that is the path we want to take uh, or not? Uh, and so it's always struck me as strange that when it comes to the most important question in all of life, uh, we put a standard that we don't apply to any other major sure. life decision that we make. Yeah, and I think... Um you know, I think, and people tend to want proof when it comes to, that's a great point, they tend to want proof often when we're talking about God uh, in a very kind of concrete way, like prove it beyond a, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, if you will. You know, I, I want, you know, I used to have some students who'd say, why doesn't God just come down and just, just like show us he's here without necessarily appreciating, you know, what the story of the gospel is. You know, this idea that God does enter human history and 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 from what we know of reading the gospels a, a lot of people saw jesus do some pretty incredible stuff miraculous stuff and still didn't believe and still doubted uh, now there was the opposite too a lot of people did come to believe but it wasn't as if you know everybody in jesus's world just thought oh there's the proof there it is um you know there's the famous post-resurrection encounters where you know he comes to to you know the apostles and and even then there's a sense of is it is it really you and uh, so I think um, proof in in a in a very if you will modern scientific sense uh, may not be possible but but there is evidence you know or what uh, you just talked about reasons to believe you know and and so the the absence of of what we might call perfect proof. Uh, doesn't mean that there aren't very credible reasons and, and evidence to propose God as existing and, and even God entering into human history. And But you don't, and I think that's one of the, one, one thing that stands out about your book, I think for me, you know, objects of faith or science, visual, signs of the existence of God or the presence of, uh, you know, something transcendent, that, that you can connect to, to me, that's, that's more, and in my personal life, that's been more of an emotional exercise, right? And, and usually we think about that, of faith being a matter of the heart, uh, and that um, something that's maybe even held on to emotionally, despite being illogical. And I would think maybe <clears throat> a lot of people come to, to God or faith through a feeling or an encounter where like something happens and you just feel like this inspiration thing. Um, but sure, you, and, I, and I, I wouldn't say that that's, you know, uh, not not a worthy path. I think r religious belief, it's not just a weighing of reasons. It, it's ultimately, certainly for the Christian tradition, it's a relationship. God, the relationship between God, who is love, and, you know, 
us creation because when you get you don't shy away from this in your book you 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 confront this straight on about the about the logical or reasonable you know more likely than not about the person of jesus you know you we're talking about if you take the gospel literally it's it's very very challenging to the to the reasonable mind but you kind of come at it of um you know the whole the whole depth of uh you know Thomas Aquinas and and, and fitting that into a, a framework. Uh, sure. Well, going back a cultural to, framework, sure. as you described. Well, going back to what we just talked about, thinking about let's say who you want to marry, whom to marry. It, it, that that engages, I think, both the mind and the heart. And uh, falling in love and deciding to get married, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't say that it's all about just a sort of weighing of of pros and cons of you know. Do we believe the same things? Do we want to live in the same area? But, but, but those questions are also important, right? And so you'd hopefully have a sense of, you know what, my, myself and my spouse, we agree on a lot of important things about life. And, and there is sort of this practical uh, element to it. But also you, you do want to have this emotional, this feeling, this, this sense of mystery that uh, you, know, you can't really quantify or explain it. But when that person... When you're with that person, it's just transcendent, and and they invoke in you uh, a joy and, and a sense of possibility that other people don't. So I think, you know, God, the Christian tradition has always emphasized that God, um, or the, the, you know, that Christianity is a relationship uh, between you know God, the Creator, and His creature, and we don't want to reduce it to a weighing of, of pros and cons or evidence, but nonetheless, that can be very informative in terms of getting us beyond maybe a point of skepticism or or open to um, that relationship. I, I've always been frustrated by the uh, pitting of uh, science against religion because to me, uh, God's most authentic revelation is his creation. And to the extent science discovers things, um, religious doctrine needs to accommodate that because God's creation is his most authentic revelation. And part of his creation is that within us uh, which hungers for a relationship with him. Um, I think we are hardwired for that. Uh, and it gets back to the question of What's reasonable to believe? Is it reasonable to believe that I'm, each of us, a willed outcome? Uh, or that each of us is an accidental result of a concatenation of events? Sure. Uh, and I think the truth of that is revealed by internal introspection. And that emotion, which is part of our creation, meaning it's part of God's revelation, uh, and what that directs us to. Uh, Malcolm Muggeridge has just a superb book about his search for faith. Uh, and uh, he didn't have it, uh, but there was something within him uh, that hungered for it. Uh, and and it, it's real, authentic. It's part of the creation. It's part of who we are. Sure, and I, I think to... to um extend that a bit, this discussion between science and religion, um, I, I think what I've uh, tried to, to highlight and stuff I've written is that there are scientists themselves who articulate this, this compatibility uh, between 
religion and faith or between science and faith. And there are scientists themselves, very accomplished scientists who, who are believers who are Christians or, or, um, if not Christians, maybe another, uh, religion, but who articulate a lot of what I've just tried to kind of bring out in my writings and books. So I think one of the big, um, uh, I suppose, uh, misconceptions I've tried to address is the idea that it's just it's just religious people who are trying to find these bridges between science and faith, and it's only religious people who are making claims that scientists have some sort of entrustment or some sort of faith. And, and in my book, I talk about Paul Davies from Arizona State, uh, university. I don't know if he's still there, but at the time he was. Uh, Francis Collins, a very well-known scientist um, who uh, I think at one point was the director of the National Institutes of Health. Uh, so th- these are people who are are trying to show that um, a, a scientific worldview is not inconsistent with the view that also sees God as the creator and as sort of the origin of, of the incredible, sophisticated, complex enterprise of science yeah and uh, I just want to just want to read a little excerpt from um, from the book in the in the first section because you kind of get to get right into the to the root of this in your I think it's your second chapter but you, you start talking about something that you call the 3 a.m. phone call I think yeah you know, talking about because your, your book the subtitle a journey of discovery you know how how does one go from you know being being the skeptic or the you know this stuff is just too complicated or too crazy or too weird. Or like I see weird people doing weird stuff. And I, but you, you talk about, well, what's, what kind of like causes this discernment to go in this direction and use a word like, you know, conversion or, you know, the Greek metanoia, change a heart towards certain direction. You use uh, the, the analogy, the 3 a.m. phone call, the, the idea that some things just shatter our, our worldview tragedies. Uh, you use an, an example of a student, um, that had gotten into uh, an accident, but we all experience those in our life. And you say it's like inevitable. Eventually, we're kind of going to get shaken from our from our foundations a little bit. And after you kind of describe your uh, uh, example, of the three a.m. phone call, uh, you say this: <clears throat> authentic religious belief begins not with people who want to flee reality, but with people who want to move more fully into it. Too often, people assume religion involves closed systems of thought that restrict free and uh, rigorous inquiry. While these systems exist, that description fails to reflect the broader religious landscape, especially that of Catholic Christianity. You say, in my experience, religious people aren't primarily those who claim to have answers. Rather, they are people who persistently ask questions. They are people who possess a curiosity that enables them to entertain mystery and to remain open to new insights and discoveries. Religious people see dogma and doctrine and the more challenging practices of religion as providing a means of talking about, approaching, and respecting the mystery, which nevertheless remains wholly transcendent. Can you unpack that just a little sure. bit? Sure, the idea a lot of, there, yeah. Uh, but, but the idea yeah. of like, oh, kind of what we're talking about, of like what call, what is authentic religious belief and how is, I think this is the opposite of how people think about religion. People think about religion as being you're closed off, you're, you're, you're following these things blindly. Sure. Um, and you kind of invert that understanding of, of it's an it's a investigation, it's an openness, and this is a maybe framework for talking about mysterious, sure. transcendent things. Yeah, and... and Thanks for bringing that up. And I suppose, and I hint at it in the book, but I should probably emphasize again that I'm speaking in the context of Catholic Christianity. I, 
I don't pretend to speak for all other religious paths or world religions, although I do think there are some commonalities based on what I've talked about. But the idea, I I think, is coming from, or my point in the book is that in in Catholic Christianity, which is the tradition that I'm a part of and which has formed me, there is a tremendous uh, respect for the use of reason and the idea that uh, this this gift of ours, this ability to to uh, delve rigorously into the mysteries of existence, is a gift. Um, from you know Aquinas being a, maybe the the most famous example in Christianity, there's a sense of let's engage the big questions of life. Let's engage the questions of the world, the nature of God, suffering, evil. Catholicism does not flinch from that. Catholicism doesn't try and shut that down into easy answers. Uh, and, and again, I, I'm not saying other religions don't don't have uh, frameworks for this, but for, for me, you know, I've always found Catholicism to be a place where my my questions have a place. And, uh, you know, I majored in philosophy in college in part because uh, I I think I had encountered some people who, who believed in a way that just seemed, uh, I needed more. I needed more evidence or more more explanation, more reason. And philosophy provided a foundation for that. And then as I studied more philosophy, I got into theology. And so uh, the idea is, uh, Billy, that I think that we, we can too easily push, in my experience, religious uh, believers into this category of that they just unquestioningly, blindly accept stuff that is is ridiculous and, and borderline, you know, magical, uh, i.e. not real. So my my encounter with the Catholic intellectual tradition has been one of, of uh, a very philosophically rigorous approach, which isn't to say there aren't, you know, puzzling or mysterious teachings or doctrines. And I mentioned that in the book, too. I, at some point, a religious experience can be a very difficult um, enterprise, and, and it can present ideas that are, to our to our sort of 21st century minds, to be very challenging. But they were challenging to, to minds of the first century, too, you know. So I, I don't want to say that religion, uh, Catholic religious belief, kind of collapses into this very uh, commonsensical uh you know, uh, easily validating idea. It, it's it's complex, it's mysterious, but has a good philosophical uh, element to it. And I also switched gears for one last uh, kind of subtopic here of, of, uh, of culture. Um, this is a political podcast, but, you know, I think politics is really about public life, you know, and how, how we relate to each other, how we're going to move as a society. And now with social media, we're you know we're kind of all public, public figures in a way. Um, so what do you what do you make by the health of our of our culture uh, right now, and perhaps like maybe the spiritual health of our of our culture? Um, and what might your kind of writings or your uh, perspective bring to to the public forum? Wow, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, that's uh, that's a. A great question, and we could probably unpack that for months. Um, so I think I, I would probably approach that by maybe talking about some of the landscape that um, maybe Christian or Catholic writers, or the, the ways that some of these Catholic Christian writers approach culture. I think there is there's one sense in which there some some writers or, or Christians look at culture and get very unnerved by it. Um, 
and think that you know a, a Christian worldview is sort of eroding daily. They look at political trends and get very worried. Uh, I think of Rod Traher, uh, who wrote a book called The Benedict Option. He's kind of a well-known conservative blogger, and, and he's, I would say, very pessimistic about about whether you know Christianity uh, has a chance in the modern world. Um, I I don't tend to have maybe as negative a view. I certainly think there are concerns about the extent to which you know today's uh, believer can can. Uh, at, least, at least in terms of you know, Catholic Christianity, the extent to which some of the political trends are making that more difficult. But I, I also think that um, there, are, uh, there are plenty of reasons to, to stay hopeful about uh, the spiritual life of people and uh, religious belief in general. Um, I don't equate it with political success. In other words, I, 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 I don't think that uh, we can just look at, you know, Supreme Court appointments and things like that is, as you know, the signpost for whether or not we're a spiritually healthy nation. Um, but uh, but I do think there are some concerns, um, and we could go into probably a lot of those. But I, I tend to think that um, you know things are probably uh, there's some concerns, but but I I don't share a, the the dark view I think of some, and I know it's kind of vague, but. Um, so like uh, I don't know, can Twitter be a can Twitter be a channel for, as you would say, I don't know, humanizing or uh, bringing the gospel to uh, to the masses? Sure, I I wouldn't put anything past God. I mean, I think uh, I, I believe that God can take very challenging circumstances or or different media and use that as a uh, a tool for. Um, bringing people closer to God, and and um, you know, and I, I think too, we we want to be careful not to think that ours is an age uniquely uh, complex or uniquely uh, filled with challenges and different viewpoints. And if you think of the first century, right, the the world in which Jesus entered, I mean, you had it was it was a world that was a land that was sort of politically controlled by the Romans, although there was a relationship with. You know, Jewish leaders. So there was sort of a, a Jewish influence, the Roman influence. The, the language of the uh, a common language of the people was was Greek as a holdover from when when the Greeks controlled the area. The official language of the Roman Empire was Latin. You had Jesus, who also probably knew some Hebrew, uh, but he apparently his native language was Aramaic. There, there wasn't a great relationship between you know the Jews of the time and the Romans. So in other words. It was a it was a mix of cultures, right. languages, beliefs, <clears throat> different obligations and rituals. I mean, it was, and that's the world that Jesus right. came into. So, right. I think part part of my reason for not being maybe overly pessimistic or, or having some some maybe more optimistic views than others is that it's not as if Christianity has has existed in some idyllic perfect state at some point i mean there's always tensions and even you know th think of the decades leading to the reformation where you, where you might have had a little more uh you know uh religious homogeneity even that is problematic because within catholicism itself there were you know reform movements right and challenges to kind of age-old 
you know, it's traditions. And then, of course, the, Re- the Reformation, even within Christianity itself, you have this explosion of um, differing understandings and viewpoints. And, and so I, I think we just want to be careful that we try and harken back to some but, but perfect there, golden age. But there are some undeniable twin, uh, tr- trends. And one of the themes of um, the blog is a generational um, dialogue. Or the podcast. The podcast is a generational uh, dialogue. And um, if you look at my parents' generation, um, they were a highly spiritual people. And that was true going back to the founding of the country. Uh, that began to erode uh, with my generation, the baby boomers. Um, it has largely been decimated uh, in Western Europe. And um, faith, uh, religious affiliation among your generation and the generation behind you uh, is uh, declining rapidly. Uh, So I would ask the generational question uh, in terms of your peers and the students that both of you see and teach, um, is, is, is this an, a settled uh, view, uh, or is there reason to believe as your generation moves through the rest of your life cycle and your students uh, do the same, that there will be um, a fifth uh, <laughs> religious awakening in, in, in the United States? I guess I see um, a lot of obstacles to that. And Matt, you don't shy away from that in your book either. Some of the obstacles that people have from, um, you know, from the sins of the, of the church to um, some of the, um, you know, some of the, some of the beliefs and rituals that people kind of say like, well, this ritual and that ritual, and that ritual, I don't need that. You know, I need something else. Or I, I, I can, I can depart from that. There's so many options. You talk about the paradox of choice, um, the fact that there is just so many options out there. How do you pick one or the other? It almost creates a situation where you don't, well, you but, don't pick anything. But, but, but one of religious belief has um, had some staying power in the United States, and a lot of scholars actually attribute that to the range of choices uh, and even though we did have some state-sponsored uh, religions in the states at the time of our founding, that didn't last very long. Uh, so having kind of a marketplace of religious opportunities is one of the things that has uh, been thought to have had a spiritual basis sustain itself in the United States longer uh, than in, in Western Europe. Yeah, so I, I think the the point you make um, about declining religious belief it it is certainly a reality. And when I was teaching theology in high school, um, you see this the skepticism and the questioning on, on a daily basis. And whether or not there can be a new religious awakening, I'm not sure. I, I, I think I a lot of my writing has been a reaction to I think a lot of the skepticism and doubt that I felt I could address in some way and 
And I do think there are, you see kind of maybe incremental improvements. You know, I, I would, like a, when I was teaching in, in um, California, if, if you, with, with retreats, with classes, with people who kind of model a faith outlook, and Bill, you might have seen this too, you can see it, a, uh, a change from, let's say, freshman year to senior year. Whether that carries on the rest of their life, I don't know. But I do think it's it's a challenge, and I, I think it also is a challenge because um, parents of today's students, or not just students, you know, but kids in general, I think they are struggling with their own religious faith or, or aren't believing in the way that previous generations did. So, I guess the question is, where would you be formed in religious faith? right now if not in your home and not in your school and there's so many different elements that you know talk about the fabric of society where do we go to to be in to be in groups and have community there's so many options for being in community now from you know clubs teams schools it's it's not just like okay i go to church and that's where my that's where my community is um but i think that's a you're going back to your point on the cultural dynamics of the of the early church and i think what what's happened throughout generations we've seen kind of like a retranslation or a re like awakening um within that and i think you know you you describe in your writing matt that we have all the cultural um i, I guess you would say it is uh i don't know that that we that we discover we're all in a context right faith and right. context we're in a context and there are uh, access points to to faith through through the culture and, and things that are there. And right. we tend to, I think, take, uh, you know, if you read, read Jesus, whether you're religious or not, read the story, I think we tend to kind of zap him out of that context. And sure. I, I think it's so important to study the historical and social context that even the writings themselves, like what is the genre of literature that is that is made up? I mean, in the, in the New Testament themselves, there's, you know, there's gospels, there's apocalyptic literature, there's, yeah. there's poetry, there's different things. And what, what were those authors doing? How are they writing? And who was their audience at the time? We tend to just you know, yeah. zip that out and say, oh, this is what it means for me. And yeah, I think there is 2018. <laughs> yeah, when you talk about Twitter, I can go back to, you know, are, are, are we sophisticated enough at, at understanding different texts, you know? And it's funny because, you know, we think of text message, but it's sort of, you know, when we read in these short bursts today, these web pages, which are filled with advertisements, there isn't the sense of the richness of what literature can be and what and what historical traditions can be. So you're right. I mean, the, one of the things I tried to communicate when I when I taught scripture was that the Bible is not just it's not like the it's not like a a manual like a Ford like my Ford Escape manual you can pick <laughs> up and apply it literally. There, there as you point out, there are different types of writings that have to be approached differently. The, the native language of these writings is is complicated. Right. I mean, to really understand the teachings of Christ. And what Christ says in the gospel, you have to understand the the native language in which those gospels were written, right? So it's it's they were written in Greek. The gospels are written in Greek. Well, you know, what do those Greek words mean, and and why do the authors use one Greek word instead of another Greek word? And there are scholars that have written books on this. There are annotated, you know, scripture uh, editions, things like that. So I, I do think that can present a challenge in um, in in the culture today. All right. Well. Thank you very much, Matt, for for joining us. We'll we'll wrap it up. Well, there. We didn't. <laughs> we, we we didn't 
mention the fact that the two of you talked together. <laughs> That's at, right. Yeah. At, that we were roommates in yeah. Palm Desert for a couple of years. Uh, so, yeah, we we've had a lot of these conversations before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they um, they never get old. The conversations, I think. Um, but just um, one point before we close, um, I think uh, one of the I, I think um, points that you just made, I think it's worth highlighting, is that we have, uh, I would suppose, no access to God or religious belief apart initially from the culture in which we're, we're born and bred into. Um, the, uh, you know, Niebuhr talks about that in his famous book, Christ and Culture. Certainly Catholic uh, writers have talked about that. So culture is, is, is deeply informative in terms of how we begin to think about the divine. And, and so um, that would be a, a point to emphasize, I think. Yeah, thanks. So his, uh, his Twitter account is at M. Emerson, 81. His book is Why Faith, A Journey of Discovery. You can find it on Amazon, right? It's on Amazon, yeah. Um, and you've been listening to the Political Notebook podcast. We're generational exchange on p- politics and current events. We record every week, so you can subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app.